0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
2: Hey there, I'm
3: Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
4: Normally, when you go out at night, you look up in the sky, and not much has changed since the night before. Hey, Stan, do you see anything yet? Stars same as
5: last night. The moon's waxed
4: a bit. But that doesn't mean that stargazing isn't darn interesting. It's just that there's not a lot happening in your average night sky.
5: Now? Anything? Maybe a supernova? No, but Mars and
4: Jupiter switch places. Really? Nope. But on occasion, there are things that do happen quickly in the sky. A meteor storm. An eclipse. And on occasion, the planet Venus makes a big splash by lining up with the Earth and the Sun in a rare celestial event, a transit. A transit of Venus. But this isn't just
6: cosmic fireworks for your amusement. Almost half a millennium ago, some people realized that transits held the key to determining the size of the solar system.
4: How many miles is it from the Earth to the Sun? Well, every school kid knows it's 93 million miles, but that's today. Where did that number come from? (laughs) You're thinking it came from a fourth-grade teacher. But in fact, no one knew that number when the 17th century began not even 4th grade school teachers.
5: Mr. Dalrymple, what's the size of the solar system, sir? Well, Charles, it's one astronomical unit. But how many miles is that? Okay, children, let's return to our lesson of the importance of meat pies to the Battle of Hastings. As
6: they have in centuries past, the planets are once again aligning for the latest transit of Venus, the last in your lifetime. Well, perhaps this will actually be number two if you saw the transit in 2004.
7: Funnily enough, they come in pairs. You wait for over 100 years, and you never see Venus on the face of the sun. But when you do, you get another one about 10 years later.
4: It will take place June 5th or 6th, depending on which side of the dateline you're on. And in this hour, a special big-picture science show in anticipation of the June transit of Venus, amongst the rarest of astronomical phenomena. I'm Seth Shostak.
6: I'm Molly Bentley. Oh, here's the downtown local.
4: Transit is just the movement of an object from one place to another. I mean, this subway picked us up at 42nd Street, and we'll be getting off at 14th. And that's what the transit of Venus is about, really, in, in its own way.
6: The planet appears to move from one side of the sun to the other. The next F train is in four minutes, but the next transit of Venus is in 105 years.
4: Somebody grabbing my wallet. There's station,
5: that transfer down for about an please can't clear the door.
4: What will you see on June fifth or sixth? Well, in some ways the transit of Venus is very straightforward. Just looking at it, it's a black dot moving across the sun.
8: But there is a huge amount of history behind it.
6: Because there was a time when witnessing and measuring the transit was the ultimate prize in astronomy. Well, why would that be? Because ever since Copernicus We knew what the solar system looked like.
4: The sun in the middle and the planets going around it. I mean, you could make a drawing, but no one knew what the scale of that drawing was. And transits were seen as a way to determine that. And nations
6: would come to invest great resources to send out expeditions in the 18th and the 19th century to all corners of our spherical globe to capture this astronomical prize.
4: Okay, so this celestial event, coming soon to an outdoor arena near you, was once thought to hold the secret to a basic question in science. How big was the solar system? But there was a lot of downtime between transits, so uh, got a pen? Got one. Okay, transits occur in pairs separated by eight years.
5: Pairs of transits eight years apart.
4: But those pairs are separated by more than a century, alternating between a gap of 121 years and then 105 years. So 121 years, then 105 years. So the
5: next transit will be 105-year gap, 2117, eight years later at 2125, Then there's going to be a 121-year gap, carry the one, the year 2246, and its pair, eight years later, 2254. I'll tie a string around my finger.
4: Well, unless cryonics makes some significant technological leaps, your finger isn't going to make it to 2254, and neither are you. The current transit pairing includes one in 2004 when scientists observed it with an orbiting telescope, as they'll do again this year. I hope you'll all see the transit too, but uh, you're not the first ones. There was a guy who beat you by 373 years.
8: The first transit that was seen was in 1639. It was seen by a young man, a 20-year-old, called Jeremiah Horrocks. I'm Nick Lom, the author of the book Transit of Venus, 1631 to the Present,
6: Jeremiah Horrocks was born in a rural part of England near Liverpool. Writer Peter Otten's recent book is about this talented young man who would one day become the father of British astronomy.
7: Well, Jeremiah Horrocks was a country boy born to a family of clockmakers. His father was a clockmaker and his grandfather before him. And because of the connection between clockmaking and time, sundials for example, Jeremiah Horrocks learnt the basics of the sundial, the basics of the clocks and watches in his father's workshop and got to know quite a lot about astronomy.
6: So what's the connection between time and astronomy?
4: Well, the sky was seen as a giant example of clockwork, in fact. I mean, certainly the solar system. The planets are going around in predictable ways as if they, the whole thing was geared. And, of course, about once a day, the stars rotate around the Earth, too. The sky was all about time. And Jeremiah Horrocks' true love was the night sky. I have done winding the clocks, Father. Prithee, may I go outside? See, by the mid-17th century, the astronomer Johannes Kepler had derived some simple equations that allowed us to make a pretty good map of the solar system.
7: Kepler's laws enabled astronomers to work out exactly where every planet was at any evening or any time of the day, any time of the night. They could tell you exactly where Mercury was, exactly where Venus was, exactly where the Earth is Well, we're sitting on it, so we all know that.
4: Okay, so we had said that the Earth was one astronomical unit from the Sun, and we knew that, for example, Jupiter was five astronomical units from the Sun, but we just didn't know what an astronomical unit was.
0: At that time, the people didn't know how far anything was away in the solar system. They didn't have an absolute distance in kilometers or miles or whatever else. I'm Jay Pasikoff, a professor of astronomy at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts.
6: But then along comes Jeremiah Horrocks, who was intrigued by this question of, What an astronomical unit was, and he would spend his evenings measuring the positions of the planets with respect to the sun.
4: Okay, well, maybe measuring the positions of the planets sounds kind of dull. But you have to recall that in the early 1600s, the only part of the cosmos that anyone paid attention to was our own solar system. I mean, it was our own backyard. The stars? Yeah, we didn't really care very much about them. I mean, just like a resident of Manhattan for whom the universe ends at the Hudson River.
5: What's on the other side of the river, you ask? Uh, You got Jersey, uh, Boston's probably over there somewhere, and all the rest is pretty much uh, artichoke farms.
4: So Horrocks was measuring the positions of the planets. I mean, he'd witnessed Mercury go across the face of the sun, a transit of Mercury, but that planet is so tiny, it's not really very useful for measuring the astronomical unit. But then there was our second planet from the sun, Venus. Kepler had predicted when that transit would occur, but he got it wrong. Jeremiah Horrocks, however, got it right.
6: And he would be the first person in history to have seen the transit of Venus, or maybe not.
8: Possibly some people who had been observing the sun and the sky for thousands of years might have noticed at sunset a black dot on the sun, but they would not have known what it was. They would have taken it as some kind of omen.
4: Hello, the ancient Chinese, the Babylonians, Indians, Greeks, and Egyptians had all observed Venus. They knew something about it. They recorded its motions.
6: But wait, all this staring at the sun, I mean, today we use special lenses, we have special fangled glasses. Did people know not to look directly at the sun back then?
4: Well, of course they did. I mean, those that didn't suffered eye damage. Jeremiah knew to use smoked glass and other specialized instruments. Once he calculated there would be a transit of Venus, the second of a pair, he sent word to his friend William Crabtree, I I guess today he just texts that message.
5: Dearest William, prithee, I write thee with exciting tidings. Methinks I've made the most extraordinary, ah, blasted autocorrect, extraordinary finding, and thinketh that thou shalt be most interested to learn about a celestial phenomenon. Oh, blast it, never mind.
4: Well, maybe not. Anyway, about 400 years ago, Horrocks and Crabtree were members of a very exclusive club. So just
8: two people observed the transit of Venus in 1639.
4: Okay, so
6: Jeremiah Horrocks turns his house into a kind of solar telescope. He puts a piece of cardboard in the window.
4: They had windows back then? Not when I grew up.
6: Okay, well, he had windows. He puts a piece of cardboard in the window. It has a tiny round hole in it. And at the other end of the room, he had a white sheet on which was projected the image of the sun through that pinhole lens.
7: So he was inside a pinhole camera. Hey, kids, do
4: attempt to try this at home. I repeat, try this at home. No need for a lens,
7: just a piece of cardboard and a white sheet. On the sheet, he was seeing a bright, large image of the sun. And then they waited. And on that image, a black spot. And the black spot was the planet Venus moving across the surface of the sun.
4: Like a dark freckle moving
7: across someone's face.
4: That's, that's a really weird analogy. Well, it, it was weird. I mean, for the first time, a human is observing this alignment of the sun, the earth, and the planet Venus. Far out weird. But a weirdness that this
7: young man, who was still a teenager, knew was coming. The point about Horrocks was he worked out to his great delight that this event was going to take place, and he worked out exactly which day the event would happen. And when he did manage to see it, he tried to take a timing, find out exactly how long it took for the planet to cross the disk of the sun.
6: This simple experiment held the key to measuring the distances in the solar system. Now, today, if we wanted to know how far Venus was from Earth, we just bounce a radar signal. Done. 25 million miles from Earth to Venus.
4: Right, but back then, determining that distance required quite a bit more ingenuity. Now, this is, of course, after the primitive attempts by the ancient Greeks to measure these distances and before astronomer Edmund Halley, who devised a much better scheme, which we'll come to later. You know, it's really extraordinary that Jeremiah Horrocks witnessed anything, given the fickleness of British weather.
7: He had a brother called Jonas Horrocks. And he wrote to his brother, and his brother tried to observe the transit of Venus, but it was raining (laughs) and overclouded, and he was unsuccessful.
4: Okay, well, what did Jeremiah calculate exactly? Well, he measured the size of that dark dot the best he could. One thing he found out was that Venus was four times smaller than other astronomers had said, and he knew enough geometry to calculate the distance to the sun on the basis of the size of
7: that dot.
6: So that gave him the astronomical unit and that solves the problem then.
7: Yeah, well, except that he got it wrong. Horrocks arrived at a figure of about 60 million miles for the distance to the sun, but all the astronomers before him had not got beyond 20 million miles.
4: So at the same age when today's students are graduating from high school, Jeremiah Horrocks had tripled the size of the solar system. then what happened to Horrocks? Well, he died. He died young, sadly, not long after this transit. But there is an interesting postscript. The results of this transit observation were significant enough to publish, but they were published in Belgium. Now, this twisted the knickers of the Royal Society, Britain's numero uno scientific establishment. An Englishman, one of their own, was a scientific rock star, but in a foreign country.
7: And so they decided, they knew Horrocks was dead by then, but they decided to scour the country for anything they could find written by Jeremiah Horrocks. And they published, in the middle of the 17th century, they published a works called Opera Postuma, the posthumous works of Jeremiah Horrocks. And they did a great job on that. And that's told us a lot about Horrocks that we would otherwise not have known. And because of that and significant other
4: contributions to science, young Jeremiah Horrocks. Born in rural England, the son of a clockmaker became known as the father of British astronomy.
6: Okay, but that still leaves the question unresolved. At this point in the middle of the 17th century, we still don't have a yardstick with which to measure the solar system accurately. So let's move on to the next pair of transits, because they're coming
4: up. Well, Wait, wait, wait. Before that, there were some exciting developments in math and science. The work of maybe the greatest physicist of all time.
5: Yeah, that is me. So grateful to be here, and I, I was... No,
4: the- no, 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 Al, don't get me wrong, you're good. But this is 400 years before you, the greatest physicist of all time. Indeed. Anyone have a protractor I can borrow? Isaac Newton, who figured out how the solar system works. All he had to do was suggest that any hunk of mass attracts other hunks of mass.
5: And that's what draws me closer to this bucket of ice cream.
4: Well, there is a gravitational attraction between you and that bucket of ice cream. It's there, but it's very weak, so it's very difficult to measure. But what draws objects toward each other? It's called gravity. And so with this simple idea, Newton could figure out where the moon was gonna be on any given night because he could compute the orbits of these celestial bodies. So he showed that gravity is the force, the physical effect that rules the solar system, the sun pulling on all the planets, the earth pulling on the moon. Thanks to Newton's math, you could predict their future behavior, something you can't do with cats. And that includes the orbits of the planets and the times of transits. And the other development? Edmund Halley, famous astronomer, best known for his comet, he wrote a short paper in which he worked out a better method of using the transits of Venus to determine the astronomical unit. Andrea Wolfe is an historian and author of
9: Chasing Venus, the
4: race to measure the heavens.
9: Astronomers in the future should use that transit to measure the distance between Earth and Sun. He knew that he's going to be dead then, so he was basically calling a future generation of astronomers to use the transit of Venus to calculate the size of the solar system.
4: Halley's scheme put the emphasis on timing the transits rather than measuring the size of the dot of Venus. Simple enough except that his plan would require looking at the transit from several places on the Earth.
6: And to do that required an international scientific effort, something that had never been done before. Enter the heavy hitters.
5: Man the halyards, feather the topsail, and say goodbye to ye old merry England. We're off to discover the Cook Islands.
4: Coming up, the famous voyages of an English captain. It's mass
6: transits from Big Picture Science.
4: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash XNAS. What are your plans for June 5th or 6th 2012? Well you might be in a good spot to watch the transit of Venus and we'll give you some tips for viewing that at the end of the program but now we continue with why the transits have been not just exciting celestial events but were once the key to unlocking one big question about the solar system Its size.
6: Welcome back to Big Picture Science and our special mass transits on the June transit of Venus, a rare event that won't occur again until 2117.
4: At the end of the 18th century, the British Navy was unequal. It was arguably the most powerful navy in the world.
6: Scientific organizations, the Geographical Society, the Royal Society, sought to use the British Navy for their own purposes. And for its part, the Admiralty was happy to comply. When they weren't at war, they needed funding, and they needed something to do.
5: I say, Stan, anything yet? Any war? Anything? No, sea's the same as last night. Moon's waxed a bit. How about now? Anything? Enemy fire, perhaps? No, but we were attacked by an alien ship with laser guns. Crikey! Really?
4: No. So the British Navy was engaged to map the last uncharted regions of the world, and many nations were racing to fill in the blank spaces on the globe. The Antarctic, the Canadian Arctic, the South Pacific, and there was still that nagging question about the size of the universe. Horrocks had come up with a good measure of the distance from the Earth to the Sun, but frankly, his value for the astronomical unit was still uncertain by many millions of miles. Edmund Halley had suggested a better way to use the transits to measure the astronomical unit, but it would take an international effort.
6: Because for what Halley suggested, one needs observers in the northern
9: and the southern hemispheres. Andrea Wolfe. So it became the first global scientific endeavor. So you have the French, the Russians, the British, the Swedes. It is truly an international collaboration.
4: So the Royal Society had a big question they wanted answered and were in a race with other nations to do so. So they approached none other than...
0: <music> Captain Cook. Well, he wasn't even Captain Cook then until they gave him a ship. No, uh, call me James, or even Jim, because technically... And, and
4: this guy, although he was very good at math and was a great cartographer, well, he wasn't trained in astronomy, so...
9: Cook was also trained in astronomy because every naval officer was trained in astronomy because you needed astronomy for navigation. And he was actually a very good
4: astronomer. Okay, fair enough. But as impressive as he was, the Royal Society didn't want
9: to rely on just one guy. So they also sent the assistant astronomer of the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, a man called Charles Green. And the Royal Society
4: unfolded a map of the world, much of it blank, and pointed to one spot.
8: And the place that they specifically were interested in was the middle of the Pacific Ocean.
9: Now the South Pacific is pretty empty space on the 18th century map. So it's a really, really daring voyage that's organized there. So they get money from King George III. They buy the ship, which was then named the Endeavour, and they put it under command of Captain James Cook.
5: Yes, now I am a captain. Note the epaulettes.
6: So in August 1768, Captain Cook set sail with 94 men and all the supplies that they thought necessary.
5: Telescopes, 4-inch refractor, equatorial mount with clock drive, smoked glass, a dozen barrels of grog, and 95 bathing costumes.
4: And they set sail for Tahiti. Now, Cook wasn't sent to Tahiti for his health or for some sort of well-deserved holiday. Tahiti was a special location to watch the transit, but...
8: But the British government did have a secret agenda; they did want to explore the Pacific, and uh, the transit gave a great excuse.
6: Now, Halley's transit scheme was to focus on the time it took Venus to do its thing,
7: which took patience. Some places you will see it just enter the Sun's disk, and you'll be able to watch it for about 20 minutes, half an hour. But if you're lucky, you'll see it cross right across near the centre of the disk. And you can get a transit that can last for about 12 hours or longer. So Cook and his men, debarked from this ship Endeavour,
4: set up all their equipment on the beach at Fort Venus, named after a guy named Fort, of course. They set up a portable observatory that looked like a truncated silo covered in stretched canvas, telescopes on the inside, and with their treasured quadrant, an instrument invented by the Greeks and useful for measuring angles in the sky. So here they were, on a tropical island on an international assignment. Pretty good gig, and in some cases, very good.
9: The crew was rather surprised about the willingness of the island's women to be taken, as the sailors called it, their temporary wives. So they were really enjoying this kind of seemingly paradise in Tahiti. Nothing could
6: go wrong.
8: Beautiful, clear, sunny day, very hot day.
6: And when a narrator says that nothing could go wrong, you know what happens next. Right, astronomer Nick Lum?
8: And there is, of course, the famous incident but the Tahitians managed to get into the guarded fort and take away the quadrant. And Cook and his astronomer, Charles Green, and they're both horrified.
9: And they were, like, racing across the, the island trying to find it and then found it completely dismantled. And the astronomer was rather shocked about that. But they kind of put it together and it was fine. So,
4: back to that beautiful day on Tahiti. Temperatures rising, everyone stationed at their telescopes, and what did they see?
6: Well, Cook figured they would see the equivalent of a marble moving in front of a big searchlight or something like that if they had marbles and searchlights in 1769.
9: Easy peasy. Except... You can't see Venus during the day in the sky just before she enters the sun so you can only see venus the moment she enters the sun when she becomes a black dot so but your eyes would tire very quickly so they would kind of look then like take their eyes away look again and it made it difficult to time it exactly and
4: the timing had to be pretty exact according to halley at least within a few seconds if the name of the game was to determine the distance to the sun
9: they need the times of the transit and the duration of the transit and the distance between the two tracks basically because you see the distance on a different track in the northern hemisphere to the observer in the southern hemisphere. So there's this apparent shift, and that shift is called a parallax. How does parallax help you figure it out?
4: Well, imagine looking at Venus against the sun from various places on the Earth. If you're up near the top of the Earth, you see Venus cross the sun at one place. If you're down near the bottom of the Earth, it's crossing at a different place. I mean, you can see this effect by... Using one eye to look at a lamp between you and the far wall, and then use the other eye, and you'll see the lamp moves back and forth. That's called parallax. Anyhow, it's just a bunch of high school geometry with the sun and the Earth and Venus being the various sides of the triangles. And they were trying to solve those triangles by measuring that timing of
0: Venus crossing the sun.
6: It sounds straightforward enough. Or is it astronomer Jay Pasikoff?
0: When Venus went inside the sun, turns out that there was something that seemed to elongate. It grew like saltwater taffy for about a minute, and then it popped with Venus a good bit inside the sun, so they couldn't time things as accurately at all.
8: The crucial part was that there were all sorts of optical effects, and one of the most famous or infamous effects is the black drop.
4: The black drop. It happens just when Venus moves into the sun or moves off on the other side. The images were compromised. Well, what causes it? It
0: comes from the fact that the sun is just a big ball of gas and doesn't really have a sharp edge. We only perceive a pretty sharp edge, but really the sun is getting darker as you go near its edge because you're seeing very obliquely through the gas. It's called limb darkening. Like when you tan your arms. That's limb darkening, too.
4: No, it's not. That's appendage darkening. Limb darkening... Well, that's what's responsible for the black drop effect.
0: Just at the very extreme edge where the black drop occurs, the sun is going from basically something to nothing so abruptly that it interacts with the inherent blurring of the telescope.
4: There were other optical effects confounding the measurements too, and so the timings of Cook and Green, who each did their own calculation, differed by a few seconds, which in astronomy is a lot.
9: Yet, yet they calculate the distance between Earth and Sun to be between 93 million miles and 97 million miles. Today's value is just under 93 million miles, so pretty impressive.
8: And their timings are excellent, probably better than anybody else managed in 1769.
9: So the ship sails back to London to great fanfare, because all the newspapers had written about it, this expedition to the South Sea, totally fueled the public imagination. I mean, Cook came back as a hero.
4: But another early death on this transit, too.
9: The astronomer Green did not survive. There was just so many diseases there, especially malaria, and he died on board of the Endeavour and was buried at sea.
6: Well, what was the result of Cook's mission? I mean, at this point, what did we know and what did we not know about the distance from Earth to the Sun? that elusive astronomical unit.
4: Well, they had a much better measurement than Horrocks had given them, but it was still off by a few million miles. And really, without an accurate measurement of the astronomical unit, well, down the road, we wouldn't be able to do things like, I don't know, send spacecraft to Mars.
6: Okay, so high precision pays off, just as it does in cartography. I mean, imagine Rand McNally with approximate distances.
4: Okay, we just
5: crossed the Mississippi, kids. The Grand Canyon should be just past this artichoke farm.
6: Oh, and what about the Royal Society's secret mission for Captain Cook?
9: (music) Cook also received some so-called secret instructions, whereby he was meant to go and look for the southern continent.
8: He mapped New Zealand and uh, he decided to go home via the then unknown east coast of Australia.
4: So, all in all, a successful trip. The mapping of the Pacific from Australia to Hawaii to Alaska, the timings of the transit, but it was successful not just for the numbers they came up with.
9: It's pretty extraordinary that they came up with a value for the distance between Earth and Sun, but I think what is much more important is that this is this kind of global scientific collaboration and that really the foundations of modern science, how we understand it today, they were laid in the transit decade.
6: And the expeditions would continue. The questions of just how long it took Venus to cross the sun and the size of the solar system would have to wait. The British Empire would have plenty of time to expand into the South Pacific and Africa and India as scientists bided their time another 120 years for the next pair of transits.
4: Okay, even though Cook and his Endeavour team came up with pretty good numbers, the error bar for the astronomical unit, the distance from the Earth to the Sun, was still many millions of miles.
6: But the big change now, coming up on the next pair of transits, 1874 and 1882, technology.
8: The telegraph, which was sort of the internet of the 19th century, the other major technological advance was photography.
4: No longer would they have to wait years to get the data back home, and no longer would they have to rely on someone using their fallible eyeballs to determine exactly where Venus was on the disk of the sun. A photograph was a very reliable record.
6: But it's a photograph. It's not a movie of the transit over time.
4: Yes, but they'd make photos at various ticks of the clock, and that would allow them to tell very precisely where Venus entered the disk of the sun. And so by the 1882 transit, there was even more participation in the international expedition this time including the United States, which, of course, hadn't existed in 1769 when Cook watched the transit from Tahiti. And the
6: 1882 observations nailed the astronomical unit to within 5%, and doing better than that just wasn't going to be possible using Halley's method because of this black drop effect. The effort to measure the astronomical unit using transits was done.
4: So it's now the end of the 19th century, and we've traveled from the era of Jeremiah Horrocks working by candlelight to the era of electric lights, telephones, and streetcars. The world had undergone a technological revolution in those two and a half centuries, two and a half centuries, for scientists to address one question, what size is the solar system? By the 20th century, other methods arose for measuring the astronomical unit. And today, well, we simply use radar. Oryx measured the distance from the Earth to the Sun as 60 million miles. Cook placed it between 93 and 97 million miles. And today, we know that distance is 93 million miles, and we know it to 11 decimal places.
6: Transits of Venus have gone from being our best method to find the size of the cosmos to celestial events we can all enjoy. Never again will we field expeditions to all parts of the globe to measure the size of the solar system.
4: And yet the transits of Venus on June 5th and 6th will still be an international event as tens of millions of people watch our sister planet slide across the face of the sun once again. Thanks to our transit of Venus, authors and scientists. Where will they be for the transit on June 5th and 6th? Jay Pasikoff is an astronomer at Williams College.
0: I will be observing with some telescopes on the top of Haleakalā in Maui, in Hawaii, where they have a solar observatory.
6: Nick Lam is former curator of astronomy, Sydney Observatory, and author of Transit of Venus, 1631 to
8: the present. I will be going to a place called Siding Spring Observatory, which is uh, a place where all the major observatories are in in Australia.
4: We don't know where Peter Orton is going to go, but we're sure he'll have a great time. He's the author of The Transit of Venus, The Brief Brilliant Life of Jeremiah Horrocks, father of British astronomy.
6: Andrea Wolfe is the author of Chasing Venus, The Race to Measure the Heavens.
9: So I looked at the North American map, and the highest chances of sunshine are in the deserts in Arizona. So I'm going to be in the Kitt Peak National Observatory.
4: Coming up, the transit of Venus history ends here, but the action doesn't. Find out how to best observe the transit, what these crossings mean in the hunt for Earth-like worlds, and whether there could be life in the Venusian clouds.
6: It's a special episode of Big Picture Science, Mass Transits.
1: Spring, is that you?
4: Welcome back to Big Picture Science and Mass Transits, a special episode in anticipation of the June transit of Venus.
6: We've heard about the historical race to observe and measure transits and how it was hoped that doing so would permit us to finally determine the size of the
4: solar system, which it did. But the story doesn't end there, because transits of our sister planet keep teaching us new things. For instance, during a transit, some of the light from the sun passes through the Venusian atmosphere. And astronomers can analyze that light and learn something about our sister planet's air supply. Now, why would that interest them, the atmosphere on Venus? Well, we want to know the atmospheres of any planet that we find. In particular, you know, if you were to find oxygen in somebody's atmosphere, that would be a good clue that there was life down on the surface. Not the case for Venus.
6: So this June transit of Venus will be a spectacular event. It'll be fun to watch, but it will also help scientists today understand more about Venus.
4: Yes, indeed it could.
7: Stand clear of the closing doors, please.
4: Public transit can get you from point A to point B. Transits of Venus gave us a way to measure distances in the solar system, but the transit fund doesn't break to a stop there. Just as Venus occasionally passes in front of the sun, there are other planets in other solar systems that pass in front of their suns. And when they do, they can give themselves away.
6: Have you ever noticed a moth flitting in front of a street lamp? The light from the street lamp dims just a little bit. It's a transit of a moth across the street lamp. Well, when extrasolar planets pass in front of their stars, the light from those suns dims ever so slightly as well, often by only 0.01%. But that's all that sensitive instruments on the Kepler spacecraft need to detect it.
4: The transit method of planetary detection is providing evidence of previously unknown worlds far beyond our solar system. But Kepler's mission is bigger than that. It's tasked with finding Earth-like planets, worlds where there's hope for life.
6: While transits of Venus are rare events, typically only occurring twice a century, for NASA engineer John Jenkins of the Kepler spacecraft mission, observing transits is just part of the job, the fun part.
3: Every day, in fact, probably every hour, there's a transit going on in the field of view around one of the stars that Kepler is observing. So the Kepler telescope, it's staring at a, at a whole lot of stars. How many stars are we talking about? Well, just a few, 150,000 stars. So just a drop in the bucket when you consider that we're only observing 1 400th of the sky.
4: 150,000 stars strikes me as a big number. So explain how you actually find these planets.
3: Well, it's very simple. In fact, you'll be able to do this yourself on June 5th. What we do is we watch the stars very carefully to measure the brightnesses of these stars, watching, for instances, when a planet in its orbit flies between us and the star, casting its shadow in our direction. And so we monitor the brightness of the star, looking for the telltale dips that repeat like clockwork over and over again, indicating that there might be a planet orbiting that star.
4: But that assumes that these planets actually do pass in front of their home stars occasionally, and that... Might not be the case, even if the planets are there, if the orientation of the planetary system there is not such that you would see the shadow of this planet. It it sounds like a fairly improbable event. Well, that's
3: absolutely correct, Seth. And in fact, even though we're in nearly the same plane as Venus in Earth's orbit, we don't always see Venus cross the disk of the sun. It's a rare event. So we're talking about precise alignments of the orbits of these planets around these stars in order to permit us to see the transit of these planets. And in fact, that's why we're observing so many stars in the first place.
4: Okay. Now, Kepler has been up there for, what, three years? That's right. Three years. So it's already found how many planetary candidates? I mean, it's found a lot of dips in the uh, brightness of these 150,000 stars. That's
3: right. We've we've identified over 2,300 planetary candidates. That's about
4: five per day. So... You've already found more than 2,000 what you call planetary candidates. That means they haven't been elected to planetary office yet, right? I mean, these might not be planets. I mean, do you have any idea what fraction of these candidates are going to win?
3: Jack Lissauer, one of our co-investigators at NASA Ames Research Center, has just published a paper that indicates that the vast majority of planets that we're identifying in multiple transiting planet systems are indeed bona fide planets.
4: Okay, so what I'm hearing you saying is that the majority of these candidates are going to make it. They're going to turn out to be planets. I mean, of the 2,300 candidates you have today, before you came over here, you know, probably what, 80, 90% of them will turn out to be planets, something like that? I mean, more than half.
3: That's right. That's our best guess is that 80 to 90%, and in the cases of multiple planet systems, perhaps
4: significantly more, a larger fraction, are indeed planets. Now, what Kepler actually tells you, I mean, what the data will tell you is that, hey, this particular star that I'm looking at here, it got dimmer by, I don't know, who knows what, 0.01% or something like that for a few hours, right, and then it got bright again. So the, the thought is, well, that could be a planet passing in front of that star, just like Venus will pass in front of the sun. But what does that tell you in terms of the characteristics of that planet? What can you learn from the fact that it took 2.73 hours or whatever <laughs> to, to pass in front of its star? Well, we can learn a surprising
3: amount of information about the planet and, in some cases, about the star itself. The interval, the time interval between these transit events tells you the orbital period of the planet. And if you know the mass of the star, then Kepler's laws tell you— That's Johann Kepler. That's right, memory. Johann Kepler. <laughs> okay. Okay what the mean separation is between the planet and the star. And then the depth of the transit, so so the fractional depth, how much light is blocked by the planet when it crosses the star, tells you the relative size of the planet to the star. So we get the size of the planet, we get the size of the orbit, and if we know the size and the temperature of the star, then we can estimate the temperature of the planet. That really represents the the next horizon of science and astronomy for our children and our children's children, and that is to characterize extrasolar planets, to learn whether or not there is evidence for biology happening on these planets. In one case, by observing the light reflected off the planet with a future instrument like the James Webb Space Telescope and a Coulter spacecraft that would block the light from the stars so that you could actually see the reflected light from the planet, and then you can do spectroscopy. And that is that you put the light from the planet through a prism, And you spread out the colors and you look for notches or black spots in the spectrum that would indicate the presence of chemicals which are necessary for life or which indicate that life is there, such as ozone,
4: which is a good marker for oxygen, and methane. So that would be kind of a chemical signature that there's some biology on that world. But Kepler can't find that. That's future experimentation by James Webb, the James Webb telescope.
3: James Webb or perhaps other instruments that people are dreaming up and thinking of today, it's an exercise left to the reader at this point. But, you know, astronomers and engineers and scientists are very clever, imaginative folks. And so we might get some of these answers sooner than we, sooner than we think. Well, the name of the game
4: here isn't really just to pile up thousands more planets, although, you know, that, that sounds good. I mean, it, it reminds me of the bumper stickers. Whoever dies with the most planets wins. <laughs> it sounds like you're going to win. But the idea is to find... Earth-like worlds. And so you're answering a question that really only needs to be answered once, and that is what fraction of stars have planets that are somewhat like the Earth? But we still don't know the answer to that question, right?
3: We don't. And indeed, eight years ago, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to observe that transit of Venus. And here we are eight years later. At that time, we were still a mission in formulation. We hadn't launched. We didn't launch until 2009. And so I was thinking to myself at that time that, boy, when the next transit of Venus comes along, we'll be close to having the answer, at least having the first detections of Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits of Sun-like stars. And indeed, we're on the precipice, on the threshold of finding such animals, and we have a significant number of candidates that are in or near the habitable zone and that are at the same size or smaller than Earth. And so. The data from Kepler have outstripped my expectations in terms of the kinds of things that we would see, but it turns out that stars aren't quite as cooperative in the wild as they were in the laboratory. And so it's going to take us a little bit longer because the stars are a little bit more variable and not as quiet as we expected in order for us to find the holy grail, namely to find a significant sample of Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone of sun-like
4: stars. John Jenkins, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Seth. It's been a pleasure. John Jenkins is the lead analyst with the Kepler mission and senior scientist with the SETI Institute.
6: Kepler is giving us new worlds to search for life, but of course there might be some sort of biology right next door, in our own solar system. Okay, Mars grabs all the headlines, but a possible alternative, according to astrobiologist David Grinspoon? Can you guess?
4: He thinks it's conceivable that there could be floating organisms in that thick carbon dioxide laden atmosphere of Venus, life wafting about in the Venusian breeze, a very warm breeze by the way because surface temperatures on Venus are are what, David? In Fahrenheit terms, it's close to 900 degrees
2: every day, all day, day night north south the only way you can get a little bit cooler than that on venus is to go up to the top of one of the high mountains but that that doesn't buy you much it's it's pretty darn hot everywhere on venus on the surface
4: okay so even aside from considerations of you know the lack of <laughs> lack of water no oceans no rivers no lakes the fact that the atmosphere is all this carbon dioxide and so forth, even aside from all that it looks like it's dead Jim I mean because any life would just be boiled away but you have another idea well i think
2: First of all, in astrobiology, we have to really keep a pretty open mind about the question of habitability because our notions are so heavily biased towards our one planet. So, we have to be open to ideas that seem like they're a little bit out of left field as, as long as they're not so far out that <laughs> that we're, we're just uh, chasing fairy tales. But an interesting thing about Venus is that it has this cloud deck about 30 miles up from the surface that is composed of liquid water, granted liquid water in an intense acidic solution, but yet there is a liquid medium and there are other properties of that cloud deck that just conceivably, I think, could be conducive to life.
4: So what you're suggesting is that Venus could have some sort of floating organisms?
2: Yeah, I don't see any reason why there couldn't be something analogous to bacteria that could live in cloud droplets on Venus. There's a liquid medium, there are energy sources, there seem to be nutrients, and there are even some strange chemical properties of that region of the atmosphere that could be interpreted as somewhat conducive to some kind of life.
4: So these are not big birds. These are not atmospheric elephants. These would be microbes floating 30 miles up in the Venusian atmosphere. Now, you say there's some interesting compounds up there, but really, how do these guys make a living? I mean, are they doing it via photosynthesis? Are they just eating chemicals in the atmosphere? What, What makes them tick? What's their metabolism?
2: Well, there are a couple of possibilities. Photosynthesis is a possibility. There is actually a fair amount of solar radiation Up in the venus cloud decks in fact if there was something up there that could take advantage of ultraviolet light not a trick that we've seen on earth but a trick one might imagine that life somewhere in the universe could have mastered then there there's quite a bit of energy the other possibility is that they are taking in some kind of chemical energy There are some interesting cycles in the atmosphere of Venus involving volcanoes on the surface and sulfur gases in the atmosphere and transitions between energetic molecules and what we call disequilibrium where there is sort of energetic potential in the mix of chemicals. And those are the kinds of things on Earth that life takes advantage of. And if you don't look for the same specific metabolism that we have on Earth, but look for that general property of a chemical cycle that could be exploited, by organisms, then you actually can come up with some examples on Venus of juicy chemicals that you can imagine could be eaten and digested and used to extract energy by organisms.
4: Well, as long as we're talking about the theoretical possibility of life there, uh, I'll ask you to speculate a little bit farther. Would this life have been descended from? life left over from those very early days of Venus when we think that it was a lot more like the Earth when it might have had surface oceans. And and these are the remnants of an ancient Venusian population of biology.
2: I think it's possible when Venus was a young planet, it probably had oceans. And in fact, there was probably a time when Venus, Earth, and Mars all had oceans and may even have been exchanging life between them. So there could have been an origin of life on Venus. Venus could have been infected, if you will, with microbes from Earth or Mars. So if our current understanding of what it takes for a biosphere is correct, then there's every reason to believe that Venus could have had an early biosphere. And then the question is, what happened to it when the oceans went away? And life being so adaptable and so sort of crafty at following the changes in a planet and finding niches as it has done many times in the history of the Earth, one at least can wonder if it might have found a way to migrate to the upper atmosphere niche, which still has some of those qualities of what we consider to be a habitable environment.
4: David, how could we possibly find these things? I mean, if if you could somehow control the NASA budget for the next 20 years, uh, how would you look for life on Venus? Well, I think
2: there are a lot of reasons why we need to send more spacecraft to Venus. I wouldn't advocate a mission just to search for organisms on Venus because it's a little bit of a long shot. I think it's plausible and I think it's worthwhile to consider. But what I advocate is a more broad-based exploration of Venus to try to understand the evolution of the surface and the atmosphere and the clouds, in large part to understand the Earth better by having this close-by example of a a sort of Earth that that evolved in a very different direction. But a byproduct of that in-depth exploration that, that we really need to do would be the ability to explore the clouds carefully and collect cloud particles see what they're made out of and examine these strange chemical signatures that we see in much more depth so I think just an in-depth exploration of the planet including uh, you know the specific niche that I'm talking about where you know if if we had the right kind of mission to collect uh, particles look at them in, in under a microscope we, we would see if it, there was anything there or not
4: Well, finally, David, uh, when you suggest to people at a cocktail party that, you know, it's possible that there's actually life on Venus, do you get puzzled looks? Do people uh, leave you to refresh their drinks?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. uh, There are a lot of people in this world to whom the notion of life on other worlds, in particular life on Venus, is not that alien. You know, they they saw it in a movie once. They're completely comfortable with, with the idea. It's more my colleagues who have the sort of natural conservatism that science needs. As Carl Sagan loved to say, extraordinary ideas require extraordinary evidence. So if anything, depending on the, you know who's at this cocktail party, people might shrug or chuckle. But I think it's my scientific colleagues who are probably the most skeptical, as they should be, about an idea like this.
4: I have to say, I remember a very, very old and very bad science fiction film called Zontar, Thing from Venus. But he wasn't microbial, and he didn't live 30 miles up, so... Well, David Grinspoon, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Well, oh, thanks a lot. It's been fun.
4: David
6: Grinspoon is curator of astrobiology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. So, Seth, for those of us who want to see the transit of Venus, how do we know if it's coming to a
4: outdoor theater near us? Well, if you're in North America or you're in the Middle East, you'll be able to see it. Parts of Africa, parts of South America will too, but only for brief periods of time. Look in your local papers. And how does one look at the transit? Do you need special equipment? Well, you will benefit by using some binoculars because Venus will be very small. But make sure that your binoculars have some what's called eclipse film, very dark film, over the front end. Or just take some eclipse glasses if you have those, cardboard eclipse glasses. Cut them up and tape them over the front end of your binoculars, not the back end, the front end.
6: But if you don't have special eclipse
4: film or binoculars or eclipse glasses, what's your plan C? Well, plan C is to do what Jeremiah Horrocks did, and just take a piece of shirt cardboard, punch a hole in it with a needle, take a second piece of cardboard, hold the two apart, and project an image of the sun. And doggone it, that will work. It'll be safe.
6: Thanks to our transiting production staff, because they're always on the move, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Tanya Lewis.
4: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to a special
6: episode of Big Picture Science, Mass Transits, in anticipation of the transit of Venus, June 5th or 6th, depending on where you live. We hope you'll be inspired to watch the transit of Venus. You'll be participating in history and delighting in the science and wonder of this transit that lasts for 105 years.
4: And between now and the next transit, why not check out more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. You
6: have 105 years to do so. (laughs) And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and you can leave your comments there as
4: well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because it's transitory, check out the listing on our website of Radio stations that carry the program.
3: Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality, psychology, biology, folklore, Literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at MonsterTalk.org.